this week on Dig Me Out. With your hosts, Jason Diaz and Tim Minichi. Jay, we're back again with another episode. Thanks to our Dig Me Out Union on Patreon. You can help us make the next episode happen by joining us at DMOUnion.com or DigMeOutUnion.com. And Jay, this episode is a new it's new territory for us. This is a, we're going in a different direction here, but we're also doing something uh, familiar, which is uh, we're talking to our friend Chip. Hi, Chip. Hey, how's it going? Good. Good. And uh, long ago, at the very <laughs> start of this podcast, the very first interview ever done was done by Chip. Chip, do you remember what that interview was? I remember doing some early on, and it was maybe Ben London, or maybe Ruth B. Morris, or maybe Miles from For Love Not Least. There you go. Okay. You, I you got it with the third. Those were all from uh, from year, I believe, year one, or or year two, maybe year one and two, right there. But I believe that uh, it was For Love Not Lisa was our first interview, and it was you who did it. And uh, we figured eleven years later. <laughs> maybe it's maybe it's time to to reintroduce this concept where uh, Jay and I uh shut up for an episode and uh, and Chip takes over and and does an interview cuz quite honestly Chip you've been interviewing people uh in the music world lo- a lot longer than Jay and I have uh been alive to be honest. Uh <laughs> this goes back I mean you were you were working for Rolling Stone in the 70s. Uh, just a young man on tour with Stillwater. Well, you know, in all in all truth, um, I did start like around the time of the decade that you uh, you guys cover on the show. My first interview was with uh, a guy named Joey Ramone. You might have heard of him. Heard of him? Yep. Uh, 19, I, have, I have a solo record. 1991. I was a, a college student, and uh, my dream was to write for Rolling Stone. And um, you know, as I've mentioned before, I, on as a guest on the show, pre-internet, right? So uh, I don't even know how I found out how to get in contact with him. I don't think I wrote him a letter, although I did write a letter to one of the labels, whatever label Fishbone was on. You know, I, I've interviewed Joey Ramone and I'm, now I'm like, I want to interview Fishbone, but I don't know how to get a hold of him. So I'm going to handwrite a letter and send it to the Sony office. Oh my and, gosh. And I never, and I never heard back. And so Angelo Moore, if you're listening, you're still on my wish list of people to interview 30 years later. So hopefully one of these days that will happen. Let's get but, that done. But what yeah, so- the- what was the lead time on that? By, by the time you would send a letter, they would get it I, and respond back. I, you know, on, for the Ramones, I think I did somehow figure out how to call their publicist. Um, yeah. And it's funny because I, I, I'm, a, I'm a little bit of a pack rat and uh, I still have the piece of paper with Joey's home phone number written at the top and all the questions like my hand, what I ask him. And, um, you know, it's embarrassing, but funny at the same time, you know, wow. this is my first interview ever. Right. So I ask him, you know, like questions like, um, how did you guys decide on the Ramones as being the common last name for the band? And, and who are your influences? And the things that like, I cringe that I, that I ask, like, I would never ask those questions today, but mm-hmm. I didn't know any better. So, uh, little, little, sorry, little funny story is that I call him up, right? It's his home number. And the first thing he says, or I said, Hey, Joey, it's Chip from Ohio state. And I'm here to, to do an interview with you. And he says, Chip, man, how are the wife and kids? I'm 20, 20 years old at the time I yeah, freeze. Yeah, yeah. I'm like, well, I'm not married. I don't have kids. He must be thinking somebody else is calling him. He's going to hang up. I'm like, um, uh, I, I don't have wife and kids. And, and he was like, ah, I'm just trying to break the ice, man. How's it going? And I will tell you, he answered every one of my stupid questions as if it was the first time he'd ever heard it. So, yeah. you know, I think if it had been a terrible interview, um, I wouldn't be here tonight because I probably would have quit after the first one. But uh, it was a great interview and I've been doing it since 1991. That's amazing. That's awesome. That's a hell of a way to start uh, your career. I know. And and now we've reached this point, the nadir yes. of it with us. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> no, th- I'm really excited because you yeah. are constantly interviewing people for various things and a big takeover 
and your podcast. And some of these align perfectly with us. And so we got to talk and we were like, what if we made these a part of Dig Me Out? So without further ado, we're going to be sharing your interviews, both uh, through the regular pod and then also exclusively at Patreon, where you'll be able to watch the, uh, the video, just like when we do all of our episodes. And we've got, it, we've got some lined up already. Let's talk about uh, who your, uh, your first interview is for uh, this, uh, this show. Yeah, so like you said, um, I do a lot of interviews for BigTakeover.com. Big Takeover sort of has a punk rock uh, you know, foundation. Um, it, it definitely is, has broadened into some, a, a lot of what I want to cover, but there's a lot of nineties artists who are either still putting out music that maybe don't fit in that format, or quite frankly, some nineties artists who have completely, as you guys cover all the time, who've sort of dropped out. Uh, so those are who I'm interested in talking to. And this provides that perfect platform for that. Cause the interviews I'm doing for dig me out may not be aligned with anything else I'm doing. So the first one though, um, so I got an email uh, a, a new band, a new project called Land of Gypsies. Uh, the album just came out in early December on Frontier Records. And as I look through the, the the lineup of the band, the lead singer's name is Terry Elos. So if you don't recognize that name, and I know you guys do because you know you're you're deep into your early 90s hard rock and hair metal stuff. But for those who don't know, Terry Elos was the singer, is a singer of a band called XYZ. He spent about I don't even know the time, five or 10 years as the lead singer for Great White. He came in after Jack Russell left the band and he recorded two or three records with them. Um, 2017's Full Circle, uh, I think I mentioned it in, in the interview, uh, 2017's Full Circle is, is a great record. I mean, I don't know that I would say that it, it, you're going to hear it and say that's Great White at its core. But when I heard it, I was like, I would pay to see Great White do this album cover to cover and not have to listen to any of their greatest hits because it was that good of a record. So the guy is a phenomenal singer, even, you know, 30 plus years later. And XYZ was, um, would you consider them like a a third or second or third phase, you know, kind of pop metal band that really went into the 90s? I mean, the first record came out like almost 90, right? Yeah, so we talk about that in the interview. Uh, you know, they formed in the mid '80s. Uh, the bass player Pat Fontaine, Fountain, Fontaine, Fountain, one of those two, um, mm-hmm. moved over from France and sort of uh, connived Terry into moving over because he promised him the world and said that they were going to be huge stars and limos and girls and drugs and rock and roll. And uh, you know, you'll you'll hear what Terry says about that. That that was not exactly true. What happened? But they moved over. Um, Terry moved over. XYZ started, they, they played the Sunset Strip probably mid-80s to late 80s. Uh, they signed a record deal sort of, you know, in, in the history of it, a little bit maybe at the tail end of things. Um, yeah. They were a little bit late in, in the game. But, um, you know, I would say that, you know, I first heard about them in probably Metal Edge magazine. Uh, you know, they were covered amongst all the other Sunset Strip bands at the time, although their music was not quite, um, it wasn't quite as lipstick and leathery as the, their peers. Uh, it was more um Dawkins, scorpions a little bit more the a little bit more the hard rock stuff but like, had a european european flair to it yeah yeah absolutely <laughs> yeah i you know when i was talking to terry i showed him um for those of you who are watching this you can see my xyz cassette yeah. uh so i mean i bought this back when it came out i saw them i saw them one time i saw them open for macaulay schenker group and both bands were doing unplugged it was probably 1991 mm-hmm so the debut came out in October 1989. Again, you're going to hear a lot of this, but they, I, I think they were sort of smart. They went out on the road with bands like Foreigner, with Ozzy, with Ted Nugent. So they didn't do like these package deals with yeah. Pretty Boy Floyd and Tough and all right. those bands. Like they were, they were opening bigger arena kind of tours. And so that probably separated them a little bit too. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other cool thing is, so then... That was 89, that record came out. They toured for a while, then they came back in the studio and they put out a record. We've talked about this, or you guys, I mean, I've been on a podcast talking about Nirvana and and the year Nirvana Mm -hmm. broke, 1991. Their second record, Hungry, which I have the long box version of, still wrapped and everything. Um, Hungry came out on September, I think, 3rd, 1991. So two weeks later, Nevermind came out. So, you know, kind of horrible timing. Uh, Terry, in the interview, talks about how even before, while they were recording their second record he said they knew they knew things were changing 
they yeah. they knew that it wasn't it wasn't a big surprise and they just tried to make the best biggest sounding record they could and hope that it got some airplay but uh the writing was on the wall and and they hung on until what 93 until they lost their deal and then yeah they lost their deal in 93 uh terry is is a character um i think you're going to enjoy his stories uh, he talks about kind of the show where they got the call from the manager that they'd been dropped and it's a uh, it's a good one um cool. but yeah they got dropped in 93 you know uh I think with, with a lot of those bands, um, things just, you know, they decided things weren't working out. Uh, they, they saw the writing on the wall. Um, Terry talks about how he got out of music for a number of years. He got into a bunch of different, different side projects, a few not music related at all. He said he was sort right. of burned out again, the stories he tells, like, I feel like there should be like a Netflix series, like a, a made for made for TV drama. He, he, he managed a bar that had, mafia ties it just it's crazy yeah. it's a crazy story <laughs> um but yeah then somewhere along the lines you know he got he, he he got the bug again and um you know sort of brought xyz back um i don't i think it's maybe just him and pat are the two players that are still in xyz uh i think they probably have a couple of different guys who, who fill in they don't they don't go out on headlining tours they don't hop in a van go coast to coast but they do things like the monsters of rock cruise they do the m3 festival in fact they'll be doing both of those in 2022 yep. um they do one-offs here and there so it's it's an active band but not a very active band i'm, I'm fascinated by the the stories of uh that could almost be like a documentary town where it's like meteor media what is it meteoric meteoric rise then dropped and then like yeah some of these people in these bands like you just go back to work in a job that that has to be humbling and also but then to come back again because you think of like probably pick up you know maybe more family life have some kids like get used to a paycheck to then let that go again and go i mean essentially get back in a van or in some sort and tour and like be a full-time musician again that's that's quite a journey so I'm yeah, glad he, getting these stories. He, he he's do, he's doing a lot now musically. He's got, like yep. I said, the land of land of gypsies album just came out. He's put out a couple of solo records, and and I don't think these are big, huge money makers. I don't think he expects to retire off these, but, um, you know, and I tell him in the interview, the fact that he's still singing and his voice sounds so good. I mean, this is he, you know, he sang on some X Y Z demos that kind of sort of got him the gig. He said it was like 1984, 85. So I'm not good with math. What is that? 34 ish, 35 years. And, and the guy's voice is phenomenal even today. So, um, take advantage of it as long as he's got it, I suppose. Yeah. yeah. No doubt. Well, I think that's a great lead in. I hope everybody, uh, enjoys this interview and look forward to more of them to come from chip. Thanks chip. Yep. Thank you. Uh, XYZ started before you, right? Pat started uh, XYZ in the 80s, early 80s, and then you joined in the in the mid 80s. Is that an accurate? It's correct. But X, X, uh, XYZ started. Uh, are we re- you want to start now? You're right. Sure. Yeah. XYZ started um, uh, in um, in France. Uh, it started started in France without me. Um, what happened is Pat hired me to sing. Uh, it paid me a lot of money for a demo. Well, a lot of money. He paid me well to do a demo. Uh, he needed a singer because there was no really rock singer in, in Lyon, France. So um, he paid me and uh, he, the demo was, was, sounded really good. He made a CD out of it, which, a CD, an album out of it, which I had no, uh, I'm trying glasses. <laughs> I had no, uh, I no, um, yeah, these ones are better. Uh, I, I didn't know what would happen with the song. So I, uh, changed the melody melodies i did a bunch of things and he said well this is it. it's called xyz i'm like okay whatever so he shopped it around and he didn't get any bites in the in in, in the french market but he got some bites in the u.s market apparently people were liked it because it sounded very scorpion it's sounded very much like scorpions at the time so the um he lied to me and he said um why don't we come to the united states um I have a, uh, a record company that's interested in XYZ. I said, really? He said, yeah, um, everything is set up. We're going to get signed. We have this, we have that. 
Hold on, I think I'm going to sneeze, so I apologize sure, for sure. that. Um, it says we have a, a, a label that's very interested. <coughs> I'm sorry about that. No, very interested in XYZ. Um, we have the limousines waiting for us. We have the women waiting for us. And I'm like, well, that's better than what I have here. <laughs> you know, and I was not too crazy about coming to, to, uh, to Los Angeles. I was actually aiming to go to London. Uh, I wanted to go to start my career in London, but I didn't know anybody in Los Angeles, uh, in uh, London, just one guy in Los Angeles, Pat. So I packed my bag. Uh, I, I had a, an old Gibson guitar and that I still have. I really liked that guitar. And I had $500 in my pocket. And I thought it was, it was a lot of money. I was like, oh my God, I got so much money. I get $500. Anyway, and, and I was 21, or yeah, 20, 21. So I was all excited. And um, I came to Los Angeles. I arrived and I arrived at the airport. I looked around and he was, he looked, he picked me up in an old Chevy Nova, all beat up. The windows didn't go, didn't go up. I'm like, wait a minute, you know? And I said, where are the girls? Where, what's the, where's the limousine? He said, there's none. And I said, really? <laughs> so he took me to a hotel in Long Beach. We had to share a hotel with the, the rest of the guys in one room. And Long Beach is not what you can call Beverly Hills, like just, especially in the 80s, it was pretty much ghetto. So um, we, I was really upset about that. And I said, wait a minute, you lied to me. He said, yeah, but if I, if I would have told you the truth, you would have probably never showed up, which is true. Yeah. So I, after a couple of weeks, uh, my money ran out and I had $125 in my pocket. And so I quit the band, the band. There was no record deal. There was nothing. It was just a lie. I quit. I went to Santa Monica because I figured Santa Monica has the beach. So worst come to worst, I can sleep. I can sleep outside, you know? And um, I said, all right. And I knew one person in the United States. Actually, I knew of one person in the United States so I called that person after being able to reach that person. I talked to this gentleman who knew my family. I've never met him, actually. And uh, he was from Austria. He was an old uh, German, North Austrian um, um, person. And he, he, was, uh, he, used to be, he used to go to Auschwitz when he, when he was a kid. He was sent to Auschwitz in a camp. Um, but he escaped just because the, uh, the, the Russian actually uh, liberated the camp just before he was sent to, uh, him and his family were sent to uh, the chamber. So um, he, he was very kind. He was named Henry Lichtenstein, and he was very kind. And he said to me, when I came to the United States, somebody gave me a chance. Uh, uh, most of my parents, most of my family died in the Holocaust, but America is a land of opportunity. It's the most amazing country in the world. And I, you seem like a good kid. I, wanted, I want you to have a, a good life. So he gave me an opportunity to stay with him. I had no job, didn't speak English really. And, uh, and I stayed with him, worked for him for a while. And then uh, eventually I got back with, together with Pat and uh, we tried different guitarists, different uh, bay, uh, drummers. And eventually um, we, we, after a few years of trying and playing the Sunset Strip, we got a record deal. So how long between kind of the, the formation and the record deal? Because um, I think I heard or read that you, you were kind of the, what, the, like the unofficial house band at the Whiskey. You we were actually, there was, there's been, and that's just very, I'm very proud of it, but there was, there's been only three bands that were uh, uh, unofficial house band at the Whiskey. Well, the first one was, of course, The Doors. Uh, the second one was Motley Crue. And the second, uh, third one was XYZ. There was never been any other band that was uh, unofficial uh, uh, ex, um, house um, a whiskey band. You had to play once or twice a month, usually twice. Op meaning open for the bigger act, like we opened up for whomever was coming in town at the time. Rat was big, and Guns and Roses, all those guys. Uh, so we opened up for everybody, and uh, we also were able to do our own shows that were always sold out. Well, you know, and uh, and uh, yeah, we worked with Mario. Mario at one point who owned the the, the whiskey and the Roxy and, and other places, Mario and Lou Adler, actually. I don't know if you know who Lou Adler is. Yeah. yeah. They were our managers for a few months. And uh, I remember uh, Mario telling me, hey, Frenchie, I like you. You're, you're a good guy. <laughs> <laughs> you got to go places. You're a good guy. And he was really nice. Mario was great. He used to, we used to, on the sunsets, we pass out the flyers. You know, back in the days, it was 
it's wild. I mean, these were wild times that really, I don't think you will ever see anything like it again, but um, Nashville is a little bit like that. I just came back from doing a show in Nashville. Nashville is a bit like that without people passing out flyers and giving flyers, you know, uh, but it's the same thing, clubs everywhere. Although the difference between um, Nashville, oh, I just saw some shows, I played actually Friday night in Nashville, is the fact that in Los Angeles, the bands were actually out there all dressed up rock and roll, like it was us, Warrant, Poison, everybody tough. Who were all of a, uh, giving it, passing each other flyers, trying to pick up the chicks uh, because girls were very important because they would bring you food. Uh, uh, they, the groupies, what we call them, which actually I don't like that word, but um, uh, those ladies were kind because they used to bring us food, you know, and and do other things as well. But really, the food was the most important thing. And uh, so, yeah, so we used to do that. So I think it took. Um, I think it took three years from the moment we put the band together to the moment we got signed to uh, Enigma Records. Yep. And so Enigma was not necessarily known for uh, the kind of band that you guys were. Um, I took, I remember, I don't I actually, I was trying to take a look at some of the bands that were on that label and, and even, even me writing in the nineties, like I don't, under, I don't recognize a lot of those names. Um, so how did you end up with that label? Well, I told you, the, the funny thing is we tried, we did not approach, the only label we did not approach was Enigma Records, because Enigma Records was a small label. Yeah. <clears throat> and back then, there was no such thing as independent label. Nowadays, indies are, are in, you know, you don't want to go to, you don't want to sign with a, a CBS, which doesn't exist anymore, but you don't want to sign to any of these big labels. Uh, back then, that's what you wanted. You wanted to be with MCA, Capital Records, but Enigma Records was considered a lesser type of uh, um, uh, label. So he said, no way. Um, so we, um, we did not approach them. The, the true story is <clears throat> I had a really good friend of mine. God, I got so many great connections with Italians. <laughs> I had a good friend of mine named Pino Bavaresi, um, Italian guy, playboy. And um, he was a really good looking dude. And, it, and he still is, you know. Uh, <laughs> he's, he's riding his bike when they're on the Sunset Strip. And that's an interesting story. He's riding his bike. He looks really cool, long hair, riding a Harley, you know. And he drops his gloves on, on the ground. And this girl behind him, she honks, but he didn't hear that. So he, she picks up the, the gloves and she follows him. <clears throat> and she says, you lost your glove. You lost your glove. He's like, oh, yeah, thank you very much. Uh, blah, blah, blah. Would you like to go for a drink? Uh, it's late at night. It's like two in the morning, whatever. She's like. Yeah, yeah, he's hot. You know? <laughs> yeah. so they go, they go to a place called Ben Frank's on Sunset, which is no longer there. They go and have a, um, a coffee or apple pie, whatever, two in the morning. And she says to him, "Oh yeah, I work for the record company Enigma Records." And of course, my friend Pino, being one of my best friends, immediately thought about me. He said, "Oh, you work for the label?" So at the time, we didn't have cell phones. So he called me. He goes to the payphone. He said. Daddy, I got a girl from the record company. She wants to listen to your tape. I'm like, at two in the morning, I'm like, yeah. I'm like, okay, whatever. So, she, you know, you go give him a tape, you know. And I say, bye, bye, bye. You know, she was uh, Sharon. And I'm still friends with her, by the way. I, her and I are very good friends. <laughs> Sharon. So um, she said, okay. She takes the tape. She, next morning, she listens to the tape and she said, oh my God, I love that band. So the next day, we get a phone call from, um, uh, the A&R department, it happened just so fast. The A&R department called us and said, this is so-and-so from the label and we would like to sign you. And I thought it was a joke. So I hung up and he called again. He said, no, this is earning my records. I'm like, yeah, right. Okay. See ya. Hung up again. And he called again. He says, here's the number. Call the label. I'm like, oh, fuck, man. Another <laughs> one of my roadies playing a crank on me. So I called the number, number and I was just about to scream and say, fuck you. And any of my records may help you. I'm like, holy shit, it's the real deal. So um, they said, well, yeah, I don't know for a second. So we put me in touch with the guy. And the guy said, we really like the, the band and we'd like to meet you. So we went to the studio. We did not explore uh, the label in Culver City. We didn't expect anything at all. I'm like, yes, they just want our publishing or they just want the songs. or They don't care about us. You know what I mean? We, we were, everybody passed on us. We said, this is it. We're just going to have to do our own thing. And that's what it is. And we were asking for some ridiculous things. Like, we want half a million dollars up front. I want a limousine when I go to a party. I want this and I want that. 
because we knew they would never give them to us. So we we really had a bad attitude. I, put, I remember putting my feet on the on on the on the desk. I really didn't care. I'm like, screw you, you know. And the guy said, "All right, I'll get back to you." And I'm thinking, yeah, right. So I can't even remember the drive back. I was in the back seat. <clears throat> Mark was up front. Pat was driving. The three of us were driving, and, and I'm like, I'm gonna boot you there. And then we got a phone call a few days later. I said, "Well, we cannot give you everything you asked. You've asked, but the majority, yes." And I'm like, are you kidding me? <clears throat> they said, yeah, we just made a lot of money because they signed Poison. Oh, right. Poison was on the label. And Poison was making a killing. So they said, we have money, so we need to spend it. So they agreed on everything, and, uh, and the rest is history. <laughs> so at that point, you're in your early 20s, and you're getting handed a lot of money. Were you like a typical early 20-something who goes out and buys a car and buys all kinds of stuff? Or did you store some of it away? Or, or, or what happened with all that money? Well, <clears throat> yes and no. At first, yes, I was a moron. Like a lot of kids who, 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 who you know, you, you give me a half a million dollar and, and another half a million dollar. And we had a huge publishing deal, half a million dollar publishing deal with a, another company. So we had money left and right. And it's a 90, so you have to realize half a million dollar in, in the 90s late 80s actually yeah. um, it's a lot of money it's like tr- triple nowadays so i'm like okay and we're all living together so we're not spending any money so uh, yeah I, I did some stupid things but um um quickly i realized that money uh, uh would not necessarily stay so i uh i decided to save money and when we were on the road uh pat and i we everybody else would stay uh, at a nice hotel and everything you know we would stay in the bus. We would say, no, 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 no. We're, we're staying in the bus because we have a bus, tour bus. We're sleeping in the bus. And um, the money you're giving us to, to, to pay for the room, we want that money in our pocket. So that's what we did. We saved the money. And then we slept in the, slept in the, in the bus and were taking showers at the venues. That's yeah. what we did. We, so we were pretty smart. You know, um, it, 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 All the other bands were staying at the Marriott and the Hyatt. And we didn't. We, we stayed at crappy motels and that's the way we survived because when the 90s happened and all the bands got dropped all of a sudden you needed to survive and a lot of bands were completely in disarray which we were also but not as much as some yeah so i know don dockin produced it was that something was that something that you guys were looking for did you approach him was it something the label said hey we got you know if we if we put don dockin's name on it, it's going to help or like how did that relationship come about well, actually, Don Dockin was not my first choice. My first choice was Paul Stanley. Uh, we met with Paul. We had a great, uh, great feeling with Paul. Unfortunately, Paul had to um, uh, uh, go on tour for a long time, so he couldn't. He said, "I'm sorry, guys. You know, it's not going to happen." But I've always had a, uh, so much admiration for for Paul, uh, which I, I have admiration for Don as well. Don't get me wrong; I think Don is fantastic. So. Um, a record company uh, had a relationship with Don Darkin because he's worked with different bands. He's, at the time, he was working with Great White. He's worked with a lot of things. So um, they said, you know, this new band is from Europe. And Don was working with a lot of European bands. He was working with the Scorpions and things. So uh, we met with him and we liked each other and, and we started working together. I mean, it was a great time. Don, Don is a very uh, talented uh, songwriter. Uh, and he was... At the time, he was on top of his game, and his voice was fantastic. And uh, he was really a, 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 a really, a, a really a great artist. You know, really good yeah. artist. So the album comes out in October of 1989. Yeah, you guys hit the road right after that. I mean, before the album came out, we were already on the road. We are uh, we were doing things left and right, and then around uh, late October, early November, we got a tour with uh, Ted Nugent. We toured with him for about a month and a half, um, showed us the ropes. And then we got another tour. We did some dates with Dio. We did some dates with Ozzy. Um, we did a lot of dates left and right. Uh, Foreigner, Alice Cooper. We were, we were on the road nonstop. I mean, that's the way you, you, um, you basically promote your, your band. But we had an amazing um, tour manager. Um, his name is Larry Moran. Um, and Larry really took my career to a different level because uh, Larry, who actually 
I don't know if you know who Larry is, but Larry owns the company called Monsters of uh, Rock. Okay. You know, that's sure. He, yeah, he's the part owner uh, of that company. Uh, so Larry's a very bright man, and uh, he uh, he really he was. <laughs> we used to used to be funny because at the time nobody had the internet, fast and everything. So we used to go at five in the morning to, for example, at the radio station, the morning show when. And, and, you know, the, the DJ just got there and he knocks at the door. like, hey, 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 I got the band here. And, and DJs were like, what do you mean you got the band here? Yeah, we have an interview with the band. You don't you remember that? And the guy was like, I, I don't see anything on my paperwork. You know, uh, said, well, they're here. The tour bus is outside. They're supposed to come and do an interview with you at six in the morning for the you know, morning show. So I'm like, the morning drive. So the guy was like, oh, okay, well, I'll bring the band in. Of course, we were not invited. Sure. We had no idea who we were. And uh, what's the song? Inside Out, bring the song Inside Out. And they were playing the song and the fans were like, oh, that's really cool. I like it. And then we did that almost every morning. <laughs> every time we went to a different market, we were doing that, you know. And Larry took our level, our career from this level to that level because he was, he was a genius as promotion. Nobody's ever done that. I yeah. mean, um, he would park the tour bus right in front of the station and he crank up the bus, the, the, the bus with the loud sound and everything. So, God, okay, let them in, you know. You know, and nowadays you can't do that. But back then, it's what he did. Yeah. So brilliant, man. So you're on the road quite a bit, end of uh, 89 and into 90. You're touring with a lot of bands. So you were a Sunset Strip band that were, you were appearing in all the magazines I was reading, the Metal yeah. Edge and yeah. all the, all the, you know, what is today called hair metal. Um, but you were really not touring with necessarily your peers. You were touring with more established, um, bigger artists. Yeah, we were touring. We didn't. We never toured with other peers. We mostly toured with a, a much bigger bands. Um, and uh, of course, we had a. We were a small, much smaller band than those guys, but we learned a lot from them. Uh, and, and we were able also to establish great connections with some of these artists, like Foreigner and things. And uh, you know, some t- you make a choice. We had a great um, uh, uh, touring agency called Monterey Peninsula, and uh, our agent was really good and. Um, give us the opportunity to, he says, you want to tour with the, uh, the other bands, like, I don't know, uh, Warrant or whatever, you know, which is great, by the way. Uh, or you want to tour with a foreigner or a Nugent and Alice Cooper. What do you want? I would take Alice Cooper, you yeah. know? Yeah. So it was less money for sure, because we would have made way more money touring with a Warrant because uh, we've known those guys for a long time and we had a great relationship and money would have been easier to deal with. Foreigner didn't give us crap, but the exposure was... Yeah. And we were exposed to different markets. We were exposed to um, a softer market. Foreigners, a softer market. Now Ranger, we did a chip trick, chip trick. It was not exactly heavy metal, but it was perfect to, to, to do that. It was a good idea to do that. Yeah. So I realize this is 30 years ago, so you may not remember every single date, but <laughs> do, do you remember when the tour ended and when you started thinking about going into the studio and writing and recording Hungry? Yeah. I remember the last show we did was in... Um, in the Salt Lake City, uh, last last night of the tour, uh, I was before I was at the sound check in the afternoon actually, and I knew it was the last day of the tour, and I knew that the following uh, Monday or Wednesday I had to be in the studio, and I had no song, so I'm like, okay, we've been touring for a year, for a year, we have no songs, what are we gonna do? So that particular afternoon, I wrote the first uh, single for for the uh, uh, with Paul, we wrote the first single. I'm like, okay, what is write something so i remember very very well it was a bit uh, overwhelming because the first album did very well and and all of a sudden people are expecting you to do better and i've never had that kind of pressure and uh and we were not prepared to be honest with you um we didn't have the my management wasn't as smart as some other companies um so we were a little bit lost um, and, um, and then also grunge started to happen. So we were like thinking, oh, this is going to be an interesting transition. I didn't think dr- grunge would be so big. I was like, ah, nobody's going to like, like that kind of music. And I was completely wrong. When we released our album, um, uh, Nirvana was already out, uh, Soundgarden, people were only talking about them already. And we released the album within a few months, although the album was doing great, you know, we sold Within a few months, it sold 220 or 250,000 copies and was going on radio station, adding the, the single MTV, you know. Within a few weeks, we were dropped. 
And I said, well, we're doing great. And like, yeah, but there's a change of regime. So they don't want to have anything to do with you guys anymore. So when you made the second record, had the switch to Capital? I know what Capital, yeah. did Capital bought Enigma? Is that yeah. what happened? Capital bought 49% of Enigma. And so that, that, it, that had already happened. So you knew the next record was going to come out of Capital. Yeah, we knew the next record. We were not, too, we were not happy about it. Because at Capital Records, we were kind of lost. They had bigger bands, Bonnie Raitt, Richard Marks, Poison, Great White, and so many other big bands, the Beatles, who many know. So we were small. At Enigma Records, we were the king. I mean, they loved us. Enigma Records was a fantastic uh, label. Um, God bless them. God bless everybody who's worked at that label. Um, they were really great. Um, and uh, when we went to Capital, we got lost. I mean, we were like, XYZ, who are you? You want to meet who? Uh, I'd like to meet my AR guy. Or I don't know if he's going to see you. So it's like always like that, you know, as of, you know, yeah. that's why I'm not, I've never been too crazy about bigger corporations and I like to work with smaller, you know, uh, uh, companies in general. Yeah. So you mentioned uh, when going in to write the record that grunge was starting to take off. And I, yeah. I remember I saw, I saw Alice in Chains open for Extreme at, around that time period. Uh, so I could even tell the difference, you know, between those two bands. So you were, you were aware that things were changing even when you were writing the record? Yeah, we were. In fact, it's funny because as we were writing the record, we, did, we went to um, Cabo Wobble with uh, Alice in Chains. We, uh, we played with them. Uh, we watched the shows with them, but we uh, remember there was other bands as well. But we were there. Uh, KNC, the radio stations were throwing a big parties. And we had a number one song in KNC at the time. Which was amazing because in 1990, number one song of the KNC was Inside Out. And not, was not Guns, number two was uh, uh, Guns N' Roses. Number three was Metallica or vice versa. I couldn't believe that. I'm like, wait a minute. When they did the countdown and they announced who was the fourth, I'm like, oh, we're not even in the top five, not even in the top four. And then they said number two. I'm like, I can't believe they didn't even announce us. And I remember driving, I was on my hall on this number one song of the year, Inside Out. And I'm like, <laughs> no, no way, you know. So yeah. anyway, so we, we did the show for KDC. They flew us to, uh, to Cabo Wabo for a week. We had so much fun and we played with Alice in Chains. I didn't think much of them, uh, and not, not to be disrespectful, but I was like, well, it's not really my, my, my thing, you know. And they were not really good players. That's what I think at the time. Now they're, they're way better. But, yeah. you know, I think I was probably maybe a little bit jealous or, or maybe threatened let's say. So I purposely didn't like him, but now I do recognize the talent. So, you know. So you're out, the album comes out. Is that when I saw you guys open for um, Macaulay Schenker group Unplugged? Was that, mm -hmm. was that part of the Hungry Tour or was that for the first time? Yeah, Hungry, yeah. Okay. okay. Um, so you did some touring around the Hungry album. Uh, yeah. MSG was one. Did, what, who else did you go out with in, in 1990, 91? We went back with Foreigner again. Okay. A foreigner, uh, did, we, we did something with Ozzy again, you know, uh, and some other bands, but I forgot whom. I mean, really, uh, yeah. uh, some Pat sometimes tells me, You remember touring with that band? I'm like, No, I don't. So, yeah. <laughs> so, so what happened? So, you did you get a phone call? Were you on the road when you got dropped? How did the, how did you get dropped, and what was that situation like? Well, on the road, we we're doing a show in uh, Louisiana actually, um, and uh, there was us, uh, Warrant was headlining. We were the second band and the first band um, was a band I cannot name uh, for reasons, but anyways, they were opening for us. And I remember they were on Capitol Records as well. So we were just, well, at Soundcheck and um, we we're just about to Soundcheck and uh, we got the phone call from a manager. We said, oh, you get bad news, you just get dropped. I'm like, what? We were bombed. They say, yeah. And, and the opening band, the opening band was not dropped yet. So they just released the album on Capitol Records and they were all like, yeah, well. So the, their manager came to us and said, change your plan um, because you're dropped and they were not, you guys are opening for us. And I said, what? And he said, yes. And, and I said, it's impossible. We're, we have a gold album. What are you talking about? You're just brand new. You're, nobody knows who you are. And... Uh, they say, no, 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 no. You're opening for us. And I talked to my manager. He said, yeah, that's the way Capital wants that. They said, they're okay with that. So we I remember very well uh, that band that I'm not going to name them. 
but uh, I, they were very mean to us. They were pretentious, and they said, uh, "For we're gonna strike the stage, meaning you're only gonna play for me that spot to that spot. We're gonna strike the lights, strike except the sound. They didn't strike the sound, but the lights were very dark for us. The stage we couldn't go here. We couldn't." I said, "Why are you doing this? We we don't need we don't know each other. We don't need to do a war with you guys." And um, they uh, they uh, they were like that. They, they were you, you know. They thought they were it. They thought they were about to become the next big thing. Um, um, so we opened up for them. We rocked their world, to be honest with you, because we had a gold album at the time. People loved us, and we'd been on tour for a year and a half. So, I mean, prior to that, so we were a killing machine back then. They were just brand new. We rocked their world, but more importantly, uh, while they were um, um, they were playing after us. Um, we fucked our girlfriends. <laughs> <laughs> I guess that's the best revenge there, right? Yeah. There's nothing they can do about it because we had a, we were, we had a bodyguard with us all the time. It was six, seven big, a giant guy from Louisiana, you know, African-American guy was giants. And he was, he was always carrying a gun with him and everything it was like, we had bad people around us all the time. And yeah, I mean, I didn't do that. Somebody else in my band did, but Pat yeah. and, Mark, I had nothing to do with that, but uh, they did. And, and, uh, and they said, bye, bye. They never knew until we told them later on. They said, oh, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> so, so was that the last show of the tour or did you guys leave the tour? Or, or? Last show of the tour, okay. but we had money and promoters wanted to see us. And uh, so we were still getting paid to tour. So that was another six or seven months of touring. And after that, nobody was interested in us because people wanted Alice in Chains. That sure. type of so that brings you into 1992, is that right? 1993. Okay. Was there uh, an official band meeting where you decided that um, it might be best to take some time off or break up? Or, or what happened Like what happened in 93? You know, you get dropped from the label and, and what happens? You, you try to find another deal? Yeah, we did. We had another uh, potential deal. In fact, we were working with Dennis Strom at the time, who was with the Mark Slaughter. Uh, Dana thought that we could probably go with RCA, or was interested in us. Um, so we were doing a demo, um, and uh, we were doing demos after demos, and people, you know, we had to reprove ourselves, you know, and everything. So, and then, uh, and finally, after being rejected by a bunch of labels, uh, we decided to, to call it. It was about yeah. 94, 94 and a half, we decided to call it. And then in 95, you put out a live record. Is that, was that yeah. kind of the putting the bow on the band and saying, here's a final thing to our fans? Yeah, it's exactly what you back. In fact, the album says, thank you. Thank you. Good night. Thank you for the support. Years of support. You know, the way about for bowing and, and thank you. That was it for me. That was it. I was moving on to work. I was moving on to a completely different career. I was no longer in the music business. Yeah. How, how was that? How was that change? There's a big, um, it's very difficult because you find you're, you, 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 you're young still, you, you reach, you're, you're able to succeed and uh, you look at your career and then you, you think, well, I'm still young, I still got it, you know, and uh, you're like a boxer, uh, I just, maybe I lost that last fight, but I still got it and nobody wants to give you a chance. So it was very uh, difficult times, a very depressing time. I was extremely depressed. Uh, I was very, very depressed, like, like you can imagine. Uh, I, uh, we all went in different directions. We didn't speak to each other. We all tried, we're all in disarray. Everybody's trying to, to do something, but nobody was able to. Uh, we all, you know, and I, I f- find myself looking for a job for the first time, and I'm like, oh my God, you know, uh, which is nothing wrong with working, of course, but yeah. it's, not de- it's not degrading, but just, you know, when you, when you go to MTV parties and, and all these big parties and you're, you know, the Grammys and everything, and, and then all of a sudden you work, in reality hits you really hard. But life, I think in, in life you have to be able to, uh, to, to ride, ride that wave and, um, and you find yourself sometimes on top of the mountain, but sometimes you find yourself at the bottom of the ocean. And uh, I always say what makes you who you are, the man that you are, is how you react when you, you go, uh, when you are at the, the bottom of the ocean, anybody can be cool when they're on top of the mountain. Right. When you're a rock star, but when you are at the ocean and you're swimming with the sharks and you're like, well, what do I do now? And uh, it builds character, I'll tell you that. Yeah. So some of your peers uh, 
put out records in the late nineties on like that CMC label yeah, and yeah, a couple yeah, other labels. Yeah. Uh, was that something you thought about Were you approached oh. or, and, and the other question, and you don't have to name names, but um, did you think any of those bands, I don't maybe embarrass themselves or maybe discredited their history by doing, by trying to stay relevant? No, not at all. I, 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 I was completely out of the music business, so I didn't know who was doing what. I have to yeah. be honest with you. Uh, for many years, I didn't realize there was still a scene. For me, it was over. I, was, I, was, I had a different career. I was doing something completely different. I didn't know who was whom. I didn't know if the bands were touring. I, for me, it was done. The music business was over for me when my career was done. Yeah. I did my thing and I was done. What did you get into? I think I heard, was it um, bartending, restaurant managing? No, I worked at a, first, my first job, I was a waiter at a, at a nightclub bartending and then a nightclub and then I became a bartender. And, um, and then the funny thing about it is what I didn't realize is the, the bar was pretty much owned by the mob. Uh, I had no idea. Uh, and I was seeing all these dark creature sometimes and I was like, well they didn't know who they were and uh and um eventually I started managing the bar doing climbing up and and I was asked to I was thinking about buying the bar and not realizing the mob was actually involved it was a uh a special uh kind of thing and uh not to get too much into it but <laughs> I uh, I uh, was dealing with with, uh, with uh, some well-known mobsters without even realizing that but uh uh, I got scared because I realized that once you're, you're, you're in, which I was already in without knowing it, yeah. uh, I couldn't get out of it. I got out of it because uh, um, once somebody in my family was a well-known, uh, uh, well, somebody in my family was a well-known person, very well-known person in, in the dark world, and he got, my, he got me out of it. He just uh, basically... Uh, you know, made a phone call and those guys said, sure, Gary's a great guy, let him be. And that was it. I, I literally walked away the next day once, once I got the phone call saying, when they said, yeah, you don't have to, to buy the bar. You don't have to do anything. Um, those, um, those people were very kind to me and they said, we know who your uncle is. And he was, you know, a powerful man. It was, yeah. you know, a godfather as well. So they said, you know who your uncle is and uh, you, you're good. You're a good kid. I was like, oh, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so the 90s come to an end. You're off doing the restaurant and bar thing. Yeah. yeah. Um, did you kind of stumble back into music? Was it something that like you, you didn't even know it was coming and here it comes? Or did you actively try to get back into? I was not into music at all. What happened is I met a good friend of mine who was doing, a, just as I was leaving the bar, he came to me and said, oh, you know, uh, you should be able to use your voice. You know, God give you a gift. and." Uh, I mean, I'm a very spiritual person. He says, God give you a gift and, and it's a shame that you're not using it. And, you know, and I was like, eh, you know. uh, so I thought about it and I said, what can I do? So I, I said, you should do voiceover. I'm like, voiceover? What's that voiceover? What's voiceover? He said, singing, singing, animations. So I sent, I recorded myself a little crappy demo with a cassette player making stupid sound, like, you know, imitating Mickey Mouse or whatever, you know, it was horrible, horrible. I mean, seriously. <laughs> uh, um, and I was singing, no, 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 making, thinking it was cool. Uh, and I sent that to the biggest casting agent in, in the US at the time, um, Barbara Wright. And she was it, she was the biggest one. And she, somehow my tape ended up on her desk. And I bullshit my way as usual to get to talk to her. So I talked to her and, um, I talked to her and she said, who are you? I said, well, and this and I guess she said, oh, yes. She said, how did you, how did you pass my, uh, my assistant? I said, well, I pretend I was somebody else. And she said, really? I said, yeah, I pretend I was an agent. He's like, wow. So, okay, okay, well, listen to your tape. He said, who do you think? She said, it's the worst demo I've ever heard in my life. I'm like, really? She said, yes, you're very, uh, you have no chance and good luck to you. And please don't call back. <laughs> okay. So I was like, okay. So I didn't think much. But six months later, I got a phone call from her assistant because my demo was in different languages. I speak different languages. Yeah. So I sang in Italian, I sang in Spanish, I sang in French and English, of course. And when I, the demo I sent her was in different languages. 
And she called me, she said, um, we have a little problem. Uh, we're doing a movie and the person that was supposed to come and do the, the demo, the, the recording, um, it's not going to happen. I don't know why. You could have got somebody else. I guess it didn't. So you said, you have to go, to, would you be interested in trying out for this particular thing? She didn't give me any details. I'm like, sure. Uh, so I went there. Um, Mark Motherbone was the uh, producer. Yeah. He said, hey, Terry, how are you? Because I knew him from Enigma Records. You know, he was on yeah. Enigma. Hey, how are you doing? He said, so what do we got to do? He said, just sign these papers right here. So sign. I'm like, okay. So welcome to SAG. I'm like, SAG? I'm like, are you kidding me? I had no idea who it was. And there was a bunch of executives in the room, you know, and they were all freaking out. I'm like, what's going on? And they made me sing a song. I did it in like 45 minutes, not even. And they said, great. You're hired. I'm like, hired for what? They said, well, it's a big cartoon called uh, The Rockwise in Paris. And I'm like, uh-huh. okay, okay. So I sang the song. And then I pushed my way to do, uh, I said, well, you know, I'll get more time. I can do other songs. And they said, no, 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 no. Mark was very kind. He said, yeah, give him a chance. So I sang out the songs. So yeah, I said, if you don't like him, you can keep him for free. It's free time. Mark said, yeah, we'll get three hours. So I sang out the songs. They loved them. He said, well, keep her, keep her, keep her. That was a keeper. And then started my career as a uh, voiceover singing animation artist. The next day I, I went to um, ICM. I called ICM. I said, hey, uh, just got a big deal with the so-and-so and uh, I'm looking for, the, for an agent representation. And they said, sure, come over. I came over and I ended up working, like doing all kinds of little things. I never got the big break, like the, the big uh, movies or whatever, but I've always there left and right, doing little voices left and right, making a living. Yeah, yeah, and then, that's great. And then I got uh, back in the music business. So you've done some XYZ stuff. Um, obviously, yeah. I know you were in Great White. Um, yeah. You know that 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 you put out two records with Great White, and I know they're both they're both great. The, oh, three, yeah. The twenty seventeen one, Full Circle, right? Yeah. Um, I you know I tweeted it, it was such a great record. Thank it you. came out around the same time that Warren's new record came out, and I think I tweeted that I would love to hear both the two of you band two of the bands tour together, but only play new stuff. I know that like in a band like Warrant and a band like Great White People want to hear the legacy stuff, but I thought both bands were putting out really relevant music in 2017. Yeah, so thank you. I think it's a great standalone. I mean, it's a great, it's a great, great white album, but it's a great, it's a great, it, it modern and good. And it wasn't just uh, something to put out there to sell records and, and keep you on the road. I thought. Thank you. I agree. Yeah. Okay. So now we're in, you know, the last couple of years, um, you've put out a solo record. I mean, I know you've been putting out solo music all along, but, um, you've, you put out a, a solo record. You just put out the land of gypsies record. Um, tell me about, uh, Terry in 2021. Well, I've just released an album, uh, on Frontier's record, uh, land, land of gypsies, um, which actually, um, it's doing very well. I'm quite surprised. I have to be honest with you. I'm, I'm getting a lot of uh, great feedback because it's a little bit different from what usually Frontiers puts out. Yeah. Usually Frontiers puts out very 80s, um, no disrespect, by the way, uh, very 80s bands, you know, uh, with the big backup vocals and everything. And I told them from the get-go, I said, I'm doing an album, but I want to do it my way. I'm not interested in doing um, those big backup vocals kind of thing. And it's not who I am. I was never into that i want to do something that's organic rock organic and something similar to you know early bad company early foreigner early uh humble pie and this is what i want and mario and serafino said okay so i don't know what they were expecting but they said okay they hooked me up with a great producer named fabrizio grossi uh, who understood my vision right away and took it to a different level because he himself wasn't into that kind of music. So Fabrizio was a fantastic producer. And he said, I got a great guitarist. I got a great keyboard player, Eric Ragnall, and, and this, and drummer. He said, okay. He put the band together around me. Um, he said, do you have any songs? He said, yeah, I got a bunch of songs because I'm, I'm, I write music. So I wrote a bunch of music. He said, this one's great, you know. And uh, put the band together around me. Uh, and then... Um, and then I had a great lyricist named J.K. Northrop because I don't like to write lyrics. I write melodies. I write um, music. Arrangement is my style. Production is my style. But lyrics, I don't think I'm, it's, my, it's not my forte. So I usually get someone to help me. And in that particular case, it was my friend J.K. Northrop. He's a very talented guy. And uh, we, we did the album. And um, 
uh, Sergey also had some uh, some songs as well that he said, "Hey, about these songs, are great." So we we worked all together and uh, we released the album and didn't know what to expect. And apparently, it's doing very well. I'm like, "Great." <laughs> Yeah. I mean, I've heard it on Spotify and it does sound great. Your voice. I mean, thank you. You're, you're a lucky guy to be able to sing this, many, you know, 30, 30, 35 years after you put out your first album, you know, it's a, it's pretty amazing and, and a, a testament to your, to your talent and to your voice. I mean, yeah. that's phenomenal. Um, you've got a couple XYZ dates coming up as long as things uh, proceed as, as hopefully as normal uh, coming up. Yeah, um, of course. Is there new XYZ material being written or is it just going out and playing shows of stuff, uh, older stuff? Well, no, we have, we've been working for the last three years with a well-known producer, which he wants to keep things quiet. We don't want sure. to tell him what it is, but um, be, for the last three years, we've been working with someone. Um, I, I wrote a lot of songs. Um, Pat wrote the lyrics. I wrote the music. Uh, and and um the thing is, it's a it's a little bit much more uh, modern than than what we used to do. It's still X Y Z in a way that it's um, it's you can the sound is there, the voice, the, you know, the groove, you know. But it's just not necessarily what the early X Y Z would sound like. And sure. I I was puzzled about it. Uh, I was questioning myself. But the thing I realized the other day, someone said to me, "Say, listen to the first Beatles album. You know, where they they was they were doing love, love me do." You know, I love you, yeah, 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 whatever. And then he said, uh, and then they listened to at the end of the Beatles, they were much more complex. Same, yeah. same for Zeppelin, the first album, uh, communication breakdown, all the songs, and then listen to physical graffiti. And I said, yeah, you're right. Production was so different. He says, well, as a band, as an artist, you have to be able to to uh, grow. And I said, what well, I did. He said, yeah, you did. But he said, what's your, what are you afraid of? I said, I'm afraid that people will not accept it. Yeah. And I realized, he said, what do you do music for? I said, I do music to please myself. It reaches truth. I do things for me. I don't do music for the media. Yeah. And no disrespect. Uh, I'm blessed and grateful that the media likes my music. But honestly, the first person I want to please is myself. So I uh, decided to put those songs out. They're going to come out this year. Oh, awesome. They cool. rock. They're, don't get me wrong. It's not. Oh, yeah. uh, yeah. They rock. It's just. Uh, the lyrics are a bit deeper, d- deeper lyrics. Everything is, uh, 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 you know, it's just, it's a bit different, you know, that's all. Yeah, yeah. So to wrap it up, the 90s, you said, and I think you, you stated it well, the 90s, you started off king of the mountain and you ended up at the bottom of the sea. Um, I'm sure that was a difficult roller coaster ride for you to go through. As you look back on the 90s, do you look back on it positively, negatively, or just it, it was just a decade of your life? I think a little bit of both, but what, what I realized is actually I grew as a man, as a person, as a person, I grew, uh, I realized many, many things, um, what was important to me. Um, and I'm, I'm a better man than I was back then. I think, uh, I, I have better, better values. Um, um, I realized that, you know, what success is all about is, it, you know, I've always, some, when you're 20 years old, you think success is driving a Ferrari, uh, all that stuff. And, um, you know, what I realized is success is not necessarily what you have accomplished. Is is success is somehow um, being able to inspire people to do better. And I think I've inspired some people. Uh, you know, and I take it. Uh, I mean, that, that's what I, I, I've heard. You know, I was you know, you know and I, I, I I'm very grateful for that. You know, uh, um, you know, there's. There's no, uh, I always say there's no uh, secret to success. It's, you have to be, it's a result of preparation, um, hard work, but also learning from your failure. That's what success is all about. You know, uh, yeah. you, you learn from, 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 from falling down. You know, you learn, you're like, okay, I got to stand up again, you know. And, and looking back on the 90s, um, it was a very difficult time of my life because, uh, you know, I went down like, like a rock. But I wouldn't be the man I am today if I would have continued growing in the same path I was in the 80s. I don't think so. Uh, I don't think so. I think uh, I like the man I was in the 80s. But the 90s taught me a lot. Uh, taught me to be more humble. Taught me to be a, a humility um, and, and different values. And um, 
the reason I'm a good father nowadays is because of the nineties being humble, you know, and yeah. also, um, you have to stay humble. You know, success is, is what is success? I don't know what success is. We all have our definition of success, but for me, success is, is being able to, to be a good person and, and inspire people. And, and it's not just the money, you know? So, right. You know. Well, that, that's a great way to look at it. Great way to reflect back on those days. Yeah. So I think that's all I've got for you in terms of questions for the podcast. I appreciate um, it. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for listening. To support the podcast, visit www.patreon.com forward slash out and become a monthly subscriber at www.digmeoutpodcast.com where you can find links to our Facebook Twitter and Instagram pages. Eyes out for danger. I've got my hands on you.